Hey guys! Today we're diving deep into a topic that's close to my heart. How to stop wasting precious time online. We're going to unlock the secrets to living a life that's meaningful and fulfilling. Now, before we get started, let me make something clear. I'm not here to bash on technology. I'm no Luddite, and I don't think that you are bad or inferior if you use social media or digital tools. In fact, I think that in the right hands, technology can be a force for tremendous good. But let's face facts. Many tech companies out there are using some seriously slick design techniques to ensure that you stay glued to their apps and platforms way longer than you ever intended. Why? Well, that's because in today's digital landscape, it's the only way they can make money. So today I want to share with you some powerful techniques and strategies to help you reclaim that extra hour or two you're spending online and redirect it toward pursuing your dreams and goals. This episode is going to break down into three major parts, the what, the why, and the how. We're going to explore what's called the attention economy, understand why it's hijacking your time through social media, and learn two simple exercises to resist its grip and start living a life that truly matters. All right, let's kick things off with the what. As I mentioned, I'm a software developer and website designer. I started to design websites when I was only 12 years old. My first creation back then was a fan site for Hillary Duff. Yeah, I was a massive Lizzie McGuire fan, and that's where I fell in love with the concept of creating beautiful web designs that were also user-friendly. In the world of web design, we called this good user experience, or good UX. In those days, around 2005, good UX meant focusing on usability and accessibility. Our goal was to make sure users could intuitively use our designs to accomplish whatever it was they came to the app or website for. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Fast forward to 2012, and I noticed a shift. Web app designs went from being user-centric to business-centric. Instead of thinking about what users wanted to accomplish, all it was about was what businesses wanted users to do. Of course, it's natural for businesses to have its goals and targets, but in 2013 or 14, things took a rather sneaky turn. Businesses began using sketchy design practices that were, let's say, less than honest. They'd add lines like, only three items left, or 10 other people watching this item, to products that had plenty of inventory to go around. The catch? These tactics were increasing sales, and guess what? It didn't matter whether businesses consciously did it or not because design templates did it automatically. In short, app design became manipulative. But here's the kicker, and it's a bit insidious. Free apps like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are prime examples of this. They don't charge you a dime, but they're making boatloads of money through ad sales and selling your personal data. That is the heart of the attention economy. The way the attention economy makes money is through these ad sales and selling your personal data. The attention economy recognizes that your attention is limited and valuable. It's a resource. It treats it as a commodity that's up for grabs. 
And here's a fun history lesson for you. The concept of the attention economy isn't new. It was born in 1833 when a newspaper called the New York Sun, owned by a man named Benjamin Day, was created. Day decided to fund his operation by selling his paper for a penny and using ad sales. Back then, his newspapers faced a challenge as they targeted the common man rather than the educated elite. To overcome this obstacle, they featured rather grisly stories, even by today's standards. This story is detailed in The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu, which chronicles the history of the attention economy as a business model. The choice by day to feature violent news stories and salacious gossip worked and set the trend for news media for decades to come. His ad-based model also paved the way for the tabloid news wars of the 20th century and eventually the 24-hour news channels of the 21st century. But wait, why is this so bad? Haven't we been warned about the perils of media before? Hey, I mean, I grew up watching Disney for hours and hours and I turned out okay, right? Well, that's where we get into the part two, the why. You see, news media has always fought for our attention, but in the past it was confined to newsstands or television screens. We still went outside to our jobs and hung out with our friends without the constant interruption. But everything changed in 2008 with a little invention known as the iPhone. Suddenly, the internet was in our pockets 24-7. Social media followed suit, giving businesses the means to monetize our attention at every moment. Hold on. Let that sink in for a second. Businesses can now monetize your attention at every moment of the day. Never before in history has that been possible. So what's the problem with that, you might ask? Well, on the surface, it seems pretty cool. Your needs and interests are catered to like never before. But here's the catch. These platforms aren't just selling you products. They're nudging you towards certain behaviors. They make money when you're on their platforms for as long as possible. That's why they've engineered their platforms to distract you with notifications, trigger your addiction, and keep you scrolling. They've also employed special persuasive algorithms designed to keep you hooked. In fact, persuasive technology or behavioral design has been around since at least 2003 when B.J. Fogg wrote Persuasive Technology, Using Computers to Change What We Think and Do. Now, here's a gem for you. Sean Parker, the founding president of Facebook, openly admitted that their goal was to consume as much of your time and attention as possible. They designed Facebook to give you little dopamine hits when someone, someone liked or commented on your posts. He literally said, it's like they're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. And guess what? The executives behind these platforms are well aware of what they're doing. After all, they're not the ones using their little creations without restriction. They know that they wouldn't be able to get to the level of success that they've achieved if they did. For instance, I heard this story from Jim Clark, who hosted a Silicon Valley business expert at Stanford University. This expert was a social media executive, and he was bragging about how people spend 12 hours a day on Facebook. But Jim challenged him. 
asking if that person would ever achieve what he had. The social media exec got embarrassed and stopped bragging. Think about it. These social media platforms claim to connect people and make them feel more connected. Yet, if users spend their entire day poking at a screen, what's the point? They're not out in the world making real connections, starting organizations, or forging meaningful relationships. They're just scrolling. So here's the kicker. Those at the top of these companies know that what they're doing isn't good for their users or for society, but they're not changing it. Now that we've covered the what and the why, let's dive into the how. The first step to breaking free from the digital trap is to consider adopting a philosophy known as digital minimalism. This isn't about ditching technology or social media altogether. It's about being intentional and efficient about how you use it. To start, it's best to do some form of digital detox and reflect on your priorities and intentions online. A digital detox means that you take a break from screens from a certain period of time. This could be a weekend or a week or even a whole month. If you're truly struggling, I recommend a full month, but you can take baby steps to start. Once you've gained some clarity, it's time to implement some strategies to reclaim your time and attention. I'm going to share two powerful exercises with you today. The first exercise is simple and it's called replacement therapy. Replacement therapy has four steps and they're kind of exciting, at least for me. Step one, first, think of what you would do if you had unlimited resources and time to pursue a new hobby. Let your imagination run wild and make a list. Just brainstorm. Don't worry about being practical at first. There's one caveat though. The hobby can't center around being online. I'm not saying that gaming or coding aren't valuable hobbies. They have their merits, but for the sake of what we are trying to accomplish, try to think of some other ideas for now. If you're stumped, see the link in the podcast notes for some ideas. My list included a variety of things, including reading, woodworking, welding, growing mushrooms, kayaking, learning outdoor photography, and meditation. Step two. Now, for step two, go over the list of things you came up with. Highlight the things you think you could actually put into practice in your day-to-day life. For me, unfortunately, I don't have access to welding materials, nor do I have the funds to purchase them at the moment, but I do have plenty of books and the ability to sit still, so reading and meditation were perfect. Step three. For the final step, make a commitment to do actually one or two of these things throughout your week. And when I say make a commitment, I mean actually schedule a time. Even better, schedule a time to do something with a friend so you have some accountability and you've created some face-to-face time with another human being. This strategy works because it seems that social media and digital technology have taken up all of our free time and we don't even think about scheduling other activities. In our minds, we feel so tired from our mandatory activities that all we want to do is go home and relax having nothing to do for the rest of the day. 
but somehow I know I don't feel more relaxed or rested after spending hours online. If anything, I'm more anxious. Somewhere along the way, we got this idea that free time has to involve having nothing to do at all. It's not relaxing unless we have nothing planned. But what's more rejuvenating than that feeling of satisfaction you have after a job well done, or a great conversation with a dear friend over coffee, or a beautiful walk in the woods, or whatever activity it is that feeds your soul? If you don't know what that is yet, we'll help you figure it out. Okay, last step. Step four, it's a kind of extra credit step, but here it is. Write down some of the ideas you came up with on physical cards to have on hand. In fact, I have a handy dandy printout for you in the show notes just for that purpose. The reason for these cards will become clear in the next exercise. If you'd rather have this on a digital list somewhere, that's fine. All right, moving on to exercise two. I call this exercise, Name Your Price. Name Your Price has four steps. Step one, the first step is to consider which app you use the most, which is the one you feel you really could not live without. Step two, the second step is to make a list of what this app does for you, feature-wise. What is the feature or list of features on this app that you use the most? Is it the feed to keep up with what your friends are doing or with what news stories are coming up? Or is it the calendar of events on Facebook, the search feature to find new products? Make a list of the things you use. Put another way, if you were to stop using this app, which features would you miss the most? Step three. Now, for this step, Imagine that this app started charging you based on how many minutes you use the app. How much time would you need each day to use the features that you just listed? Try to be realistic in thinking about how long it takes to do only the things that you listed in step two. For example, say I use Facebook the most. and One of the things it does for me is provide me with a place to find events in my area through its events feature. So I'm going to list finding local events on my list. Then for step three, I will look at my list and consider how long finding local events in my area takes me each day. Honestly, I really only need to do this once a week. So I'm going to say five minutes a week. Step four. Now, the fourth and final step of name your price is to take the time you listed in step three and set that time limit for yourself for the next week. So for me, since I only need five minutes a week, I will cap my time on Facebook to only five minutes a day on Sundays when I am planning my schedule for the week. You can kind of adjust this based on your circumstances of how you do your own scheduling. Just like with the last exercise, try to schedule when you have your online time actually put it on your calendar if you keep one. It can help you to avoid accidentally slipping online without realizing it. If you know when you definitely go online and when you don't, it helps you avoid this kind of slip up. This is where the cards from the first exercise come in handy. As a little tip, when you feel super tempted to stay online longer than your set time limit, or you even feel tempted to go back online, 
Take a look at your cards and try to use them for inspiration for what you could do instead. Another tip for being successful with this exercise is to keep a journal to track whether or not you were able to stick with the time limit that you set. If you did stick with it, write a couple sentences about how it felt to be successful and use the app for less time than usual. If you weren't able to stick with it, try to be gentle with yourself. And rather than beating yourself up, just take a second or two and explore why it was difficult to stick with. What was the series of events that led you to stay on longer than you intended? As a side note, I am a survivor of other behavioral addictions, such as binge eating disorder. And I've found that being hard on yourself when you are struggling to change a behavior is not the most effective way to bring about the change you want, at least not in my experience. Instead of chastising myself for messing up yet again, if I approach the mistake with a sense of curiosity, kindness, and compassion, a lot more gets accomplished. I always say that if I could have beaten myself up into getting better, I would have been perfect a long time ago. But that's just not the way that healing works. In closing, I want to emphasize that not all technology is evil and social media has its merits. However, it's crucial to take control of your digital life instead of letting it control you. Digital minimalism is your key to regaining balance, freeing up precious time, and living a life that's not just connected, but truly meaningful. If you want to explore more resources and get updates on this journey, visit our website at thedigitalbalance.co. That's thedigitalbalance.co or check out our Instagram at finddigitalbalance. Stay tuned for the next episode where we'll unravel the paradox of how social media impacts our social connections. Thanks for tuning in and remember to hit subscribe for more insights into finding the equilibrium between our digital lives. Until next time, stay balanced in both the digital and real worlds.